What a great song. I mean, Jesus is still the answer. I mean, they're talking about that peace and all of that. And some would say, well, if Jesus is the Prince of Peace, like he claimed to be, how come there's no peace on the earth? Well, it's interesting. He is the peace. And um, unfortunately, they crucified peace. I wonder today how many of us are crucifying the peace that we could have in our lives because we're failing to receive and accept Christ the way we ought to and allow him to rule and reign in our lives like he ought to. How sad it would be to consider or think that we too are guilty of crucifying the very one who brings peace in our lives. And although we may not literally put him on a cross, we can certainly nail our hopes of peace uh, to the ground or to the grave, if you will, uh, by not 
allowing him to be first in our lives. So I want to encourage you to put Christ where he belongs in your life. He is the answer. He continues to be the answer and will always be the answer. Amen. All right. uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. We begin a new series today. The word, uh, the, uh, you can believe too. You can believe too. And we're going to look at three aspects of that over the next three weeks. And then of course on the 23rd, as we have our cantata, we'll bring a, uh, a message that's pointed, focused specifically on just the uh, uh, birth of Jesus Christ, pretty much in that arena, I would imagine. I won't make that commitment, but probably that'll be the direction. But for the next three weeks today, today as well as the next two, we're going to be addressing this issue, you can believe too. And so Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, we'll begin there. And the Bible says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the prophet by the spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Father, we come to you. We want to thank you now for this time that we have together in this place. Lord, to consider your word, to be encouraged by it, to be instructed by it, to be inspired by it. We ask, Lord, that once again your Holy Spirit would come and not only anoint my lips, but anoint every listening ear. And Lord, may we receive exactly what you'd have for us. May we glean and grow from this message or truth that we're going to hear from the Word of God. May the truth truly impact our lives. And may we find ourselves more confident and more courageous in our faith. We love you. We need you now. Bless this service. And Lord, if there be any that are without Jesus, have yet to receive and accept him as their personal Savior and Lord, may today be that day. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. We're entering the Christmas season, and although, you know, many are trying to remove Christ from Christmas, it seems, the truth is that more than ever, more than at any other time of the year, he's being noticed. Often the question arises, did Jesus really exist, and is the Bible, Bible account really accurate? And I suppose that's not a bad question to ask. I hope that maybe, I really hope that most of you have come to the conclusion that you know what answer, uh, how to answer that question. However, it is a question that's being asked often in our culture, our society, and unfortunately being asked even in our churches today. A new Pew Research Center survey says that there's been a noticeable decline in the percentage of U.S. adults who say they believe the biblical elements of the Christmas story were actually historical fact. That, very, that more people than ever are starting to say we're not confident, we're not convinced that of the historicity or the, the, the truth of those biblical accounts concerning 
the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, the four elements they cite found in Scripture say that Jesus was born to a virgin, that the wise men were guided by a star and brought gifts for baby Jesus, that Jesus' birth was heralded by an angel of the Lord, and that Jesus was laid in a manger as an infant. The percentage of Christians who believe in all four of these elements of the Christmas story has dipped from 81% in 2014 to 76% today. Now, I think it's interesting that it says the percentage of Christians. Isn't that something? They call themselves Christians, but only 76% today believe in all four aspects of those four elements that we spoke about as being uh, a biblical account, truly going as God had intended or God has expressed in the Word of God. Not only that, but today 66% of Americans say that they believe Jesus was born to a virgin. And that's down 73% from 73% in 2014. Likewise, 68% of U.S. adults now say they believe that the wise men were guided by a star and brought gifts for baby Jesus. That's down from 75. So that went from 75 just a few years ago to 68% now. We're talking three to four years here. We're not talking a decade even. Overall, 57% of Americans now believe in all four of these elements of the Christmas story. And that's down from 65% in 2014. Think about that. In 2014, 65% of Americans would have said, well, we believe that the biblical account concerning uh, the birth of Christ, that he was born of a virgin, that the wise men were guided by a star and brought gifts to baby Jesus, that Jesus' birth was heralded by an angel of the Lord, and that Jesus himself was laid in a manger as an infant. We believe that's true. 65% in 2014, but however, 2018, or right now, we see only 57% of Americans believing those things. Now, I don't know about you, but that's rather alarming. 8% lost in the last three to four years. So with the increasing skepticism of Americans in general, can we really believe what we've been taught all these years? I mean, if so many people don't believe it, I mean, is it possible that maybe we're wrong? I mean, was there really a person named Jesus Christ? Was he indeed the Son of God? And, you know, the world has a very strong pull, and even believers themselves can be negatively affected by the ungodly views of the world. We have to be very, very careful of that, don't we? Their particular philosophies can infect our hearts unless we take action. Turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Sadly, even believers, if we're not careful, can begin to, be, to shift their position. The ground by which they stood, that foundation by which they have been upon all these years, may start to crumble underneath them in their mind's eye. When family and friends and the culture itself begins to take a different viewpoint or stand in a different place, that foundation begins to crumble slightly and we find ourselves in, in trouble, fearful of falling. We start to question even the very things we've been taught and the very Bible that we say we believe. We have to be very careful. Colossians 2, verse 8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, 
after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Boy, I tell you, the Bible long ago, back in, in, in the book of Colossians, Paul the Apostle, speaking to those people there in that city, said, you better beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. You better be careful that they don't spoil you after the tradition of men and after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. You better make sure that what you believe and where you stand is rooted in Christ himself and not in tradition or not in the position or philosophies of mankind. You better make sure that you realize there's a distinction between what the world believes and what the Bible teaches. Well, you got to make sure you remember that. And over the next three weeks, I want to prove the existence of Christ from three perspectives. Number one, first of all, the Word of God proves Christ's existence. Number two, the writers prove Christ's existence. When I say writers, I'm talking about through history, people that have written things, historians and so forth. And number three, the witness proves Christ's existence. We're going to see that the very witness of the men and women that seen Christ, it proves his existence. And so over these next three weeks, I want to provide some proofs of Jesus's literal existence. And today I want to begin, as I said, with the word of God, the word of God itself as a proof of Christ's existence. Now, let me begin by stating that the Bible itself is the ultimate proof of both itself and its claims. And I know that that seems kind of contradictory in a world in which we live. But Jesus made it clear that there's no other resource that's any better than the Word of God itself. Turn to Luke chapter 16, verse 31, would you? In this particular passage, we're reminded of uh, the setting. We know that it's, as many would like to say a parable, I don't believe it is because literal names are being used here. But God is opening a window to the afterlife and we're going to see a place called uh, a paradise. And we're going to note a place, uh, if you will, we're going to see two compartments, a hell compartment and that paradise compartment. And, and here's the response that Jesus has. The man that's on the wrong side, the man that ended up in a place called hell, he begins to say, why don't you send somebody to go talk to my brothers? Why don't you let somebody go be from the grave and tell them uh, what to expect if they don't put their faith in the right person, the right word? And here's the response that Jesus has toward him. He says, and he said unto them, or, or Abraham said unto them, if they hear not Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets. That sounds like the word of God to me. Because that's what we have contained in the book. We have the testimony. We have the words of Moses and the prophets. We know that they're God's words, but they're the words that Moses and the prophets spoke on behalf of God. Neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. He's saying, listen, I'm going to tell you something. If your brothers are going to avoid this place, they better listen to Moses and the prophets because they won't be persuaded by someone that comes from the grave. As crazy as it sounds and as, as, as uh, un, un, unreal as that may seem to us, the truth is, is that someone could raise from the dead, but it would not have the same power, would not have the same effect on our lives as the Word of God does. Jesus' words in this passage provide us with a universal truth then. The Bible is and should be our most persuasive tool. Now, we are quick to direct the unbeliever to outside sources to convince them of the reality of God and of the Bible. I mean, let's face it, you know, we'd all like to believe and we'd all like to think and we'd all like to want to be able to point people to Noah's Ark. And say, boy, look at it up there, sitting up there on Mount Ararat. Look at it, it's so plain, it's so clear. That proves that the Bible's true. 
But you know what? As much evidence as there may be in that vein, there's still equal evidence the other way that people say well, it's not really there. The truth is, is that when it's all said and done, there is nothing more authoritative concerning the flood than this. And he's saying if they won't believe the book concerning the flood, they won't believe whether someone came from the dead and tried to tell them about it. Or some boat that's sitting up there made of gopher wood. So we need to be careful because, again, the first response, why, my, my friend doesn't believe in God. Well, let's send him to outside sources. Let's go ahead and give him some kind of concrete evidence. And I'm not opposed to that. Don't misunderstand me. I get it, and I'm not opposed to it. But I do want us to realize that when it's all said and done, the greatest source of truth that you have and that you hold in your hand is literally the book, the Bible, the Word of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It doesn't say faith cometh by seeing an ark on Ararat. Faith doesn't come by recognizing that the walls fell outward from an archaeological dig and find called Jericho. Now listen, that all took place and that happened. And I do believe there's probably an ark or portions or pieces of something up there that, that might be petrified wood. I don't know. And there may be and there is, I should say, without a doubt, archaeological discoveries that prove that the walls fell out at Jericho. I get that. But when I'm, I, I tell you this, when it's all said and done, people are not going to believe that Christ was literal, that he literally lived on this earth, that he died in, on a cross, that he rose again the third day because of an ark or because of walls that archaeologically speaking were found. I'm telling you that when it's all said and done, the greatest source of influence and the most important source of, of, of convincing people is still the word of God. So be careful that you don't dismiss the Bible when it comes to trying to convince people that the Bible, the Word of God, and the things contained in it are truth. Because thy word is truth. And faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of truth. The Word of God. So, when we think about this book, what the Bible says about Christ is true then. It is. And I want to consider three reasons why it's true from a biblical perspective. Number one, I want to consider its pedigree. The Word of God's pedigree. This book was written over the course of 1,600 years. There, there, it, three languages were used to compile it, to put it together. Forty different men were used as instruments. And yet it is evident that there was only one author. I mean, you read through the Bible and you find a book, honestly, that... Well, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21... The Bible says, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The fact is, is that the Bible tells us that there is one author, and that author is God. But as you look at the Bible and you consider its pedigree, when you realize that over 1,600 years, there were 40 different men who God used to pen the word of God. Not one of them, in, in a sense, could have probably gotten together the way we'd like to and, and kind of collaborate their stories. There were people that were writing way over here and people writing way back there. And there was just so many different people being used, so many different times in history. And yet when you put it all together... The composition and continuity are unparalleled. That book, the Bible that we hold in our hands, stands heads and shoulders above all other literature. 
And to think, can you imagine with me for a while too, just the thought, how in the world did this book get to us? I want you to think about the many lives that were given to ensure that this book remained intact and that it ultimately came to us and was, was transmitted to us in a way that we could once again reproduce it in mass like we have. We can only shudder when we consider the price that was paid by saints of old to ensure its presence in our days. I mean, think about the lives and families that were given to ensure that we could hold it in our hands. Consider the blood that was shed and the unspeakable sacrifices that were made on behalf of that book through the years. And someone can say all they want. Well, there are other religions and they go way back. Nothing goes back as far as this book. There's no way. Nothing was compiled like that. Most religions that have a book or a Bible are the, 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 the creation of a man who claims that Gabriel or claims that some other angel gave him all the information. He seems to be the authority of it all. There are 40 different authors here, so to speak, 40 different pens that God used over the course of 1,600 years to arrive at what we now hold in our hand as the Word of God. I don't know about you, but when I think about the Bible, and it's still on a bestsellers list, which is amazing to me. How can I not think there's got to be something supernatural about that book? How is it that it's existed all these years? How is it that it's gone through the Dark Ages? How is it that it's come through the Protestant Reformation? How did it arrive at our place when they were murdering believers that held on to that book? Tried to cause it to become extinct, weren't even permitted to have a Bible, let alone read it for a thousand years. Kill anybody that even owned one. That's what religion will do. But thank God there were people and groups that said, we're not going to buy into that system. We're going to continue to do what the apostles did. We're going to continue to live by the word of God. We're going to continue to be directed and guided by God's hand. We're going to continue to fight and die if we have to, to maintain and to preserve that book, the word of God. Here it is. We hold it in our hand today called the Bible. The word of God. Just to eliminate any question, I believe the King James Bible for the English-speaking people. We see its pedigree. Number two, its prophecies. Approximately 2,500 prophecies appear in the pages of the Bible. About 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled to the letter. A professor of mathematics, Peter Stoner, gave 600 of his students a math probability problem that would determine the odds for one person fulfilling eight specific prophecies. Now, again, it's different. Eight, when you think about fulfilling eight prophecies, it's not just like flipping a coin eight times in a row and getting heads each time. Now, this is extremely different than that. First, the students calculated the odds of one person fulfilling all the conditions of one specific prophecy. For instance, such as betraying... Um, being betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. All the facts, all the conditions. And then they tried to find the probability of one person fulfilling or having that prophecy fulfilled in them. Then the students did their best to estimate the odds for eight prophecies combined. Eight different ones, put them all together. What would be the likelihood, what would be the probability of of all eight of these being fulfilled by one person? All the details, everything falling in the line. The students calculated that the odds against one person fulfilling all eight prophecies are astronomically, get this, 
One in 10 to the 21st power. Now, I, listen, I can't even tell you how to write that hardly. But let me, let me tell you this. He, so what happens is then, is that Stoner, he gives an example. He says, let me try to put it in a practical sense what the probability would be that all of these could, could, could happen. And again, just that there's even a probability at all to me causes me to like question it at all. Because I know it just can't. But, but here's what he said. He said, to illustrate that number, Stoner gave the following example. First, blanket the entire earth landmass, every aspect of land, Blanket the entire earth landmass with silver dollars, 120 feet high. Second, specifically mark one of those dollars and randomly bury it. Third, ask a person to travel the earth and select the marked dollar, while blindfolded, from the trillions of other dollars. He goes, now that is basically what you're, you're, that's the probability. What is the likelihood they would find the one dollar? Now, because there is still a possibility there, I'm like, I don't like that. I know that it wouldn't happen, you know, but, but that's me. I'm kind of funny like that. Somebody says, you, I'm one of those guys, I can't, I couldn't gamble. Because I would think I'm the one that's going to beat the odds. Right? You know what I mean? I mean, I mean, there's $1.4 billion for this ticket. You get the right ticket, you get $1.4 billion lately, I think it was. Uh, wasn't that $1.4 billion recently? They just gave, yeah, I think it was $1.4 billion somebody won. Can you imagine that? $1.4 Somebody said, no, it's $1.4 million. No, it wasn't. I'm telling you, look it up. It was over a billion dollars. And, and I keep thinking to myself, what's the odds of me winning that by buying one ticket? There's still a chance. And unfortunately, everybody else buying that thought that too. My point being is, is that if we would look at this thing realistically, if we'd really consider it, we, what we'd, conclusion we would have to come to is simply this. Impossible. Impossible. The American Scientific Association gave a statement because, of course, we know how people can manipulate numbers. They said... The mathematical analysis is based upon principles of probability which are thoroughly sound. And Professor Stoner has applied these principles in a proper and convincing way. Now again, someone may come up with a different number, but may I say, whether it's 120 uh, uh, deep, or whether it's 100 deep, I don't know. You tell me, does it really matter? I mean, 120 feet versus 100. I don't think that matters. That's a lot of silver dollars. Now let's consider just a few of the prophecies. Again, we're talking about the Word of God. What, what about the Word of God would cause or lend us to believe that what the Bible says about Christ is true? I believe the prophecies. Not only the pedigree, but the prophecies. In approximately 700 B.C., that's 700 years before Christ, the prophet Micah named the tiny village of Bethlehem as the birthplace of Israel's Messiah. Turn to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, would you? Micah chapter 5, verse 2. We'll look at a few of these verses along the way, and I'll read some of the verses as well because of time. But again, we start considering the Bible. What, what makes the Bible authoritative? Why in the world would we believe what the Bible says about Christ? Why is it true? How is it that we could hang our hat on the word of God? The prophecies, for one. Notice what it says here in Micah 5, verse 2. It's before you get to the New Testament. It's one of those little books. You may have to go to the beginning and look at that thing. I'm, honestly, it's, it's tricky. Unless you've got him memorized, it's hard to find that Micah. He likes to hide out. 
Micah 5, 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Euphrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Somebody's going to show up in Bethlehem, Euphrata, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. That's not some normal fella. That's not just you or I. That's, that's obviously has to be God himself coming in human form. And there we have a prophecy. 700 years before Christ even showed up, it was prophesied that he would be born or that he would be noted in Bethlehem, Euphrata. May I say that that's exactly what happened? I mean, it is the most probably widely celebrated, widely known fact in history that he came from Bethlehem. And the chance of the fulfillment alone, just that one prophecy is one in ten to the fifth power. Also, think about this. In 487 B.C., about 500 years before Christ was born, a prophet by the name of Zechariah declared that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty important fact. Not only that, but there's a few other things. We know that's the price of a slave. We understand that it would be used as a burial ground. He makes it clear. Zechariah eleven thirteen says, And the Lord said unto me, Cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was prized at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. What he's saying is there's a prophecy now. It's pointing to Christ himself that, it, that, that ultimately, not only here in this case, would, would he be sold out for 30 pieces of silver, but it would be used for a specific purpose. Matthew chapter 26, 15, we find the fulfillment of this prophecy in A.D. 30 now. He said unto them, what will ye give me? Judas, of course, speaking. And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And you know, Bible writers and secular historians both record 30 pieces of silver as the sum paid to Judas Iscariot. And they also indicate that the money went to purchase a potter's field, meaning it was used just as predicted. I'm saying it wasn't even just the amount. Even how it was to be used was defined and described in the prophecy. And yet the prophecy was fulfilled. That was 500 years before Christ. A thousand years before Christ was even born. A prophecy stated that the Messiah would have his hands and feet pierced. We look at Psalm chapter 22. Turn there if you would please. Psalm chapter 22. Psalm chapter 22, 23, and 24 are often referred to as Messianic Psalms. They're a tremendous picture of Christ and his ultimate death. We, we see it pretty evident there. It's very clear. For in this case, Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, we read, For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now, if you continue to read in chapter 22, you're going to see there's no doubt that there's something more to this than just simply some man telling you about how he himself was being persecuted. 
There's so much more to it. This is a prophecy. This is something that's pointing to a future event. 1,000 years prior to Christ coming to this earth, there was a prophecy that said the Messiah would have his hands and feet pierced. It was fulfilled, of course, in 30 AD. In Luke chapter 23, verse 33, the Bible says, and when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. Someone says, that doesn't say they nailed his hands and his feet to a cross. Oh, I know. John chapter 20, verse 20 says, and when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. You say, that's still not enough. So they showed him his hands. Why would, they show, why would he show them their hands if there wasn't marks where the nails went through? Not only that, but in chapter 20, verse 25, Thomas, doubting Thomas, says, unless I can thrust my finger into his side, unless I can thrust my finger into the holes in his hands where he was pierced, the piercings, it says. Hey, let me tell you something. Jesus Christ The Bible tells us long beforehand that he would have his hands and his feet pierced. And may I say, that was fulfilled in 30 AD when he hung there on Calvary on our behalf. If that's not enough, we think about another prophecy back in Psalm chapter 22. Again, a thousand years before Christ would be born. It says that basically people would cast lots for the Messiah's clothing. In Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, the Bible says, They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Now again, you've got to understand that in Scripture, you'll read one Scripture, and it not only alludes to a specific thing taking place there, but it's also prophetical. Every Scripture has three applications. The Scriptures all have three applications, and those three are simply this. You have the historical, you have the prophetical, and you have the inspirational. So on one hand, we have it taking place. How does it apply right then on the scene that when it was written? We also have the prophetical. What's its meaning futuristically speaking? And then we have the inspirational side of it where we can take that passage and we can apply it to just different things that we're dealing with and going through. In Psalm chapter 22, 1,000 years before Jesus Christ even graced the face of this earth, a prophecy was shared that they would part his garments among them and cast lots for his vesture. And we see in 30 AD when there he hung on Calvary in John 19, verse 23 and 24, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said therefore among themselves, let us not rent it, let's not tear it to pieces, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Again, even the scriptures say, we, this didn't happen by chance, folks. The fact that they didn't shred that garment up, that they cast lots for it, wasn't by chance. It was that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which say, they parted my raiment among them, and from my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Even in the New Testament with a writer under inspiration of the Holy Spirit is pointing back all the way back to 1000 BC and saying, now listen, this did not happen by chance. It was prophesied 1000 years before Christ even came. That's pretty amazing. Not only that, but we have another prophecy in 500 BC that the Messiah would appear riding on a donkey. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the Bible says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. You know when that was fulfilled? 
You know when it was fulfilled. Thirty A.D. again, and they brought the ass and the colt and put on them their clothes, and they set him there on. He went riding on into the city. Palm Sunday, we often refer to. They were casting palms at his feet. Boy, they could have at that point received and accepted Christ. They could have elevated to his proper place as king, but they chose to cry crucify him instead. But it was prophesied 500 years before. Not only that, but we see again in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, the Bible says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will send my messenger. 500 years before Christ ever came to this earth, a messenger was to be sent to herald his coming. We know who that was. In 27 AD, none other than John the Baptist. In John chapter 1, verse 28, John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He ultimately goes on to say, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy, but let me tell you something. He, I have to decrease, he increases. Man, he was the, the one the, uh, crying in the wilderness. He was the forerunner of Christ. He was the one that met the qualifications and also fulfilled the prophecy. I don't know about you, but that's a lot of prophecies. And may I say, that just scratches the surface, the tip of the iceberg. And what is the likelihood of even just those elements, those prophecies coming true in every aspect, in every detail? May I say it is astronomical? No, no, let me just say this. It is impossible without a supernatural hand at the helm. So we have the pedigree. We note the prophecies. But now let's consider its preservation. To think that the Bible itself has existed all these years, we've touched on it slightly, but the Bible says, turn if you would to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. There's a couple things we need to understand about this book. And I'm sure that many of you would say, I already know all that. Let's just take a moment, lay a little groundwork, and then we'll move quickly. But notice it says here in the book, this particular book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed. What it's saying is that this book is more than man's book. It's God's book. This isn't the figment of some person's imagination. This isn't some religious leader that just decided one day to put it on paper. No, this is God utilizing mankind, utilizing those who were instruments in his hand to literally put these words on a page so that you and I would have it to this day. Not only does he promise to inspire the word of God, but he also promises to preserve it. In Psalm chapter 12, verse 6 and 7, a tremendous passage. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. He's saying, listen, even in the Old Testament, way back there in the book of Psalms, a thousand years before Jesus even arrives, he is saying, listen, I want you to know that I'm going to preserve my word. It's not simply, it's not your word, it's my word. And I'm going to tell you now, although you may be called upon to sacrifice much, I want you to know that in the end, it is my responsibility to preserve my word. 
And someone says, well, mankind will always fail when given an assignment by God. Listen, I may tell you this. There's no doubt that men and women through the centuries have given life and limb in order to preserve the word of God. But may I say they were simply acting on God's behalf. He himself was the one who preserved it. Whether mankind gave up and quit and threw the towel in, somehow, someway, that book, the word of God, would still be with us today because he promised it to be so. Just the fact that it is here is a miracle in and of itself. So the book with its unique pedigree and its fulfilled prophecy is said to be preserved. Its truths and authority continue to this day. So the Bible claims an exalted position then, an ultimate authority, if you will. Therefore, if we consider that and we really see that and we realize by its pedigree and its prophecies and its preservation, as we look at those things, we must realize that all other standards outside of the Word of God then are empty because they rely on the tradition of men. In Colossians chapter 2, we already read it earlier in the, in the service, verse 8, it says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. See, all other standards other than the Word of God fail to be consistent and trustworthy. That's all there is to it. These so-called truths, if you will, man's truths, they kind of flux with changing times or changing mores of our day. They're only true as those that enforce or keep them continue in them. I mean, as long as people are believing it, as long as they're emphasizing it, then it is a truth in their mind. With every generation, however, comes a new standard then. So for this generation, this is truth. For that generation, that is truth. Because where there are changing mores and changing cultural uh, uh, aspects, then there's going to be changing truth. And you know what? The Word of God is always the same. See, you know, that's why people that will say things like, you know, the Word of God is archaic. It's outdated. It's antiquated. It's not practical today. They don't know what they're talking about. Do you realize that you don't have to go search uh, in some kind of, you know, book or some kind of uh, psychology manual how to raise your children? Because there's some truths about how to raise your kids that are written in stone, my friend, that are true a thousand years ago are true today and will still be as equally true a thousand years from now. I don't care what technology says. I don't care where science goes. doesn't matter what, what the culture does. doesn't matter what they, they, they write as laws. The fact is, is truth is always truth. And this book is unchanging. You can believe that book when it talks about Christ. You can believe that book when it says that he was born of a virgin. You can believe that book when it says that he lived a sinless life. You can believe that book when it says that he was buried and rose again the third day. My friend, you can believe it when it says he can save your sin-sick soul. You can believe it. Why? Because of the pedigree. Why? Because of the prophecies. Why? Because of the preservation. It's equally as authoritative and as powerful as it's ever been, and it will always be so. Look, if you would, now as we close, Matthew chapter 1 again, verse 18. So with that said, what's truth? We'll close it here in just a moment. 18 verse 25, through verse 25 again. Now, since we've already read it, I'm going to give you three simple points again. Here they are, very quickly. 
This book is a truth that endures, and here's the truth. First of all, Christ was conceived supernaturally. In verses 18 through 20, the Bible says, Now the birth of Jesus was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. She hasn't been unfaithful, Joseph. She hasn't strayed from her purity. No, Joseph, let me tell you, she is, she's carrying literally God in flesh. She has conceived of the Holy Ghost, a supernatural conception. And may I say that the Bible today speaks of it and settles it, if you will, because this book, its pedigree, its prophecies, its preservation tells us we can trust this book. And if it says that Mary was born of a vir- that Jesus was born of a virgin, my friend, you can believe it supernaturally conceived. Not only that, but it tells us that Christ was commissioned to save. In verse 21, the Bible says, and she brought, she shall bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. You would say, what's Jesus's purpose? What's his goal? Why did he come? I'll tell you why. Because not one person on this celestial globe could ever, ever have their sin forgiven and ultimately be in the presence of God himself without Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. It's impossible. Simply impossible. But he came for that reason. You say, I want to know, why did Jesus come? Because he's going to save us from our sin. The Lord, the Bible says, came to seek and to save that which was lost. Parallels perfectly with verse 21 of Matthew, verse chapter 1. Not only that, but in the passage we note Christ was completing Scripture. He was fulfilling the Word of God in verses 22 through 23. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled. Which the, what was done? The supernatural conception, the commission, everything that we read prior. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying... Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. Who is Jesus? He is God with us. You say, well, I'm having a hard time believing that. That's because you're dismissing the pedigree. You're dismissing the prophecies. You're dismissing the fact that it is a preserved book and it still has every bit of authority and every bit of right to stand where it does. It is the only true book and truth that exists in this world. My friend, you can go ahead and believe whomever you choose, but you will always go astray until you put your faith and trust in this word, this book, because this book and Christ are synonymous. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Don't try to separate a perfect savior from a perfect scripture. They're both one and the same. Christ was conceived supernaturally. Christ was commissioned to save. Christ was completing scripture or fulfilling. He fulfilled the law. He lived a sinless, perfect life. He was God in flesh. That's what we learn. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, we read this prophecy. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Man, you talk about a prophecy, we see most of that is fulfilled. 
And we note that he indeed intended to take his rightful place on the throne, except his very own people rejected him and said, crucify him. He can still be on the throne of your life today, though. He can still be on the throne of your life. He may not be on the throne of David in Jerusalem yet, but he can be on the throne of your life now. It was a group of shepherds who were keeping watch over their flocks by night that received the angelic message to, quote, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, prophetic, prophesied, by the way, the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, and this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Boy, they made their way. They were still scared to death. They were shaken in their boots, so to speak. I guess not boots, they're sandals. But when they journeyed to Bethlehem, they saw Jesus, and they saw Jesus, they knew right then, seeing him, that they had seen deity. Their hearts were full. Their tongues moved to praise, and their lives would never, ever, ever be the same. What'd you see out there that night, fellas? <laughs> I'll tell you what we saw. We saw an angel that told us to go see the king. We saw King Jesus there. We saw Emmanuel, God with us. Simeon and Anna, priests and priestesses, they longed to see the Messiah. They faithfully served in the temple for so many years, anticipating his coming. Their duties were interrupted one day by the very presence of a little babe. That baby's name was Jesus. He captured their attention. He consumed their souls and he confirmed their faith. They were both convinced and comforted as their greatest longing was fulfilled that day as Jesus was held in their arms. They knew the consolation of Israel had arrived. The Messiah was now there. Those wise men had traveled so many miles in search of a coming king. They'd followed his star until they'd come to the house and when they arrived there and they entered the room, or they, they arrived there and they entered the room, they fell down and they worshiped him. And when they had presented him treasures fit for a king, they presented him with gold, silver, excuse me, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There they saw the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that day. Before them that day lay in bodily form the creator of the universe, the God of all creation. Amazing. See, they believed. You can believe too. The word proves Christ's existence. Even as his parents, the shepherds, the priests, the priestess, the kings of the east believed, so can you today. That same Jesus that spoken of in the word of God grew to be a man. He would ultimately take his place on Calvary as the very Savior of the world. And he would indeed save his people from their sins. And in fact, he'd save all who would come to him by faith. And he's still doing it today. In Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, the Bible says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Huh. Wow. 
Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Boy, isn't it wonderful to know the Savior? I mean to tell you to think for just a moment that we have this wonderful pedigree in the Word of God. It's not by chance that we hold it in our hands today. We have all the prophecies that have been fulfilled literally to a T. We have a book that's promised to have been preserved to us that continues its continuity and its, 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 its authority and its power. And I say this is still God's word. Nothing has changed. It's still truth. And if we want people to believe that Christ literally came to earth, the best source is still this book, the word of God. It's what holds power. We need to preach it, proclaim it. We need to tell others about him and show them from the word of God that he exists and that he is real. It's pedigree. It's prophecies. And it's preservation. All point us to the fact that we can indeed know that Christ literally walked the face of this earth. that He was God in flesh. That he died to pay for our sins on a cross by shedding his precious blood. And when they buried him, the grave could not keep him. He rose again. And I say today that because of all that, you too can believe. You can trust and receive him as your savior. Have you trusted Christ? Has there been a time or place in your life when you said, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I realize that I'll never be able to earn your favor or enter your presence so wicked and sinful as I am. I need you to do something in my life. I need you to change me from the inside out. Save me, forgive me, and come into my life. Be my Savior. I believe too. Will you believe too? You can. Father, we come to you. We thank you for just the truth of your word. We thank you for, Father, the reality of it all. Help us, Lord, we pray. We desperately need you. Lord, there may be those that are here without Christ that have never trusted and received him as their Lord and Savior. Father, I'm asking that you would speak to them, that your Holy Spirit convict them. Show them their need of Christ today. Someone will take a Bible and show them from the Word of God how they too can know. But Lord, each of us can believe too, just as these in the Bible have, just as others through history have. We can believe because we have a book that's trustworthy and that is indeed truth. Bless us now. Help us. And Lord, for the believer, may we leave here more confident, convinced than ever that believing in you and trusting you and serving you is well worth it. And may the unbeliever today say, I can believe too and I will because I believe Jesus died for me and loved me enough to come and stand in my place, pay for my sin. And I want him as my savior today. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all